welcome to Unscripted Equity Curiosity. My name is Ami Joseph. I'm the Sector Head for Technology here at Hedgeye. With me today is Andrew Friedman and Felix Wang, the Sector Heads for Communications in China and Hedgeye. Uh, you're listening to Unscripted Equity Curiosity, which is a, a podcast, a Hedgeye podcast that we host, which is not about our pointed conclusions of longs and shorts, but it is about all the research, the cutting room floor, the research that goes into our longs and shorts, the background, all the data, all the thought processes, the macro, the debates, the thematic stuff. Um, and we hit that back and forth every week, uh, every couple of weeks, and we launch one out to you. This is the third season. Uh, this is now episode four. And today we are so thrilled to have uh, Sector Head for Gaming, Leisure, and Lodging, Hedgeye's very own Todd Jordan with us today. Um, Todd is a veteran and almost co-founder of Hedgeye and, and the CFO of Hedgeye as well and an important person uh, in the company, one of the leaders of the company from a research perspective and somebody who uh, has his Twitter handle is Snake Eyes and he's, he's definitely one of the cooler people at Hedgeye as well. Um, and also um, is one of the better stock pickers across all of Hedgeye in terms of if you just look at the, the tightness of his performance and his picks against the, against the market. Uh, in part because he used to have amazing people like Felix working for him before Felix rolled out to do China but also because he continues to train and maintain and uh, teach uh, youngsters and turn them into amazing teammates. So Todd, with that, I want to throw like a really good uh, welcome and thank you. And I want to throw like a really big open-ended softball question for you, which is um, that my sector and Andrew's sector were massively uh, overcapitalized and uh, yeah, overcapitalized in the recent bubble in like 2020 and 2021. So much capital flowing in, in, in terms of startups, in terms of our companies were able to raise, you know, 0% convert uh, equity debt crossover functions, like literally no cost capital. Uh, companies like hired like crazy, multiples went to the moon, growth rates were insane. And now we're dealing with the hangover, like the headache from that. Um, there's a lot of vomit in the toilet and we're holding each other's hair and trying to help each other out. Maybe we're getting a bounce here, uh, finally. But your sector is different. Uh, your sector, air travel and hotel occupancy, certainly anything vacation oriented, um, uh, gaming side, casinos. I remember like the first time I went to a into a casino during COVID, I was really, I freaked myself out. I was like, oh, where's my N95? Um, and that's now facing, you know, macro notwithstanding, like the next three years is going, I, I imagine is much better than the previous three years. Just kind of like taking like a rolling business basis. This is like my like general assumption is like a, just a human wandering around the world and doing things and observing. So tell me how you see your sector. Is this, am I like way off? Like, first of all, yeah, my way off, like, is that totally not how it is from like a bottom up perspective and I'm just making a top down observation. And if, and if this is wrong, give us some color. Where is this wrong? And if this is right, kind of like, you know, broadly, like, where do you, where do you want to be? Uh, like where do you, as an equity investor, like where do you want, like thematically and broadly, where do you want to be in this, in this sort of recovery? Where are you, where are you looking for best recovery metrics? Where's the recovery already done and now overpriced? You know, where's it, where, where, who is overcapitalized in terms of like, they've already spent too much on, on lining up new hotels or new airline channels or whatever it is. And, and who's already too expensive, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, good. Well, well, first of all, thank you for that very kind introduction, Ami. Uh, actually, too kind. Uh, but uh, you're only as good as your number two. And uh, with Felix with me for a long time and now Sean, uh, it's been really beneficial. So thanks, Felix, for all your time. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, that's a very broad, broad question. Um, I, I think you, you are right. Uh, you know, leisure, like let's, let's look at the broad umbrella of, of leisure, right? Um, you know, I, I am bullish over the next, you know, three years and, and longer. And, and I think, COVID really, you know, the, the trick for us is, is, is you know, we, we can see that COVID changed the businesses. The question is, you know, did they change it for the, the better or the worse? And, and is it sustainable? So a lot of our long-term views are, are, are really predicated on that, that thesis of what's, what is sustainable uh, from COVID. And, and, and I'll get into which sectors we think that, that applies to. But 
Um, look, I mean, there's there's a shift going on, and it's not just millennials. It's a shift towards experiences uh, from things. And you know, at the beginning of COVID, there was nothing to do but buy stuff, buy hard goods, and you saw um, you know a big recovery pretty quickly in in recreational products, consumer goods, and travel, and and other you know, services, if you will, consumer services really lagged. And they're still playing catch up, by the way. If you look at the cumulative spend, um, uh, services are still playing catch up, but but closing rapidly. But I, I don't think it's just a catch up phenomenon. I, I think COVID changed things for a lot of people. And, you know, I'm, I'm firmly in, in Generation X. And, um, you know, I've noticed, uh, you know, I'm buying fewer things. I'm looking more, more to travel. Uh, I mean, we had a thesis fairly early on in COVID that, uh, the group and convention business would favor leisure markets uh, over over you know the traditional urban markets like New York City, Boston, Chicago, uh, and that's clearly played out because people want to tack on a few extra days. So uh, there's there was definitely a pent up demand uh, for leisure travel, which which absolutely played through. But I, I think it's deeper and, and longer term than that. I think it's I think it's a it's a seismic shift in in spend. I think you'll see over the the coming years that the share of the consumer wallet will increasingly go to to leisure travel. Um, so from that perspective, like uh, that that's a positive long term change that that really benefits all of my companies. But you know, there's also the cost side. You know, I, I think my companies uh, were were actually very good at at um, figuring out what costs they could cut without you know really hurting demand uh, as much and 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 they're trying to sustain that right so the question is what are what is sustainable and when we look at uh, the casino companies for instance especially the regional gaming markets like they realize when they cut out the buffets and the restaurants being open every single night of the week they lost some customers certainly you can see it in the visitation numbers but they lost it uh, at the real low end, you know, these are the people low, the, the lowest 10%. Uh, they, they also found that they were marketing to the lower 50% of their customers and, and really weren't gaining much in terms of profitability. So they've, a lot of stuff was happening before COVID. COVID just really accelerated that. So they they ended up cutting a, a lot of this lower end marketing, you know, like the, the mailers and the you know, $100 in, in, in slot, you know, play and stuff like that. And uh, like I said, they lost a little bit of a little bit of visitation, but their profits are way up. So the cost structures are lower, and I think that's permanent. I think they're back to being casino businesses, right? So they're they're you know they've got to have the hotel to uh, some extent. They've got to have entertainment, which you can actually really judge the impact of of you know a country music show on you know Travis Tritt on a Wednesday because you can see what what is the you know, you're giving away tickets to your best players but you can see what is the incremental play in the casino so it's very very easy to do an R, high ROI so the, the management teams have actually gotten a lot better there's been consolidation they've gotten a lot better in the business and I think for that reason with with the management teams and, and what they figured out with COVID accelerating a lot of the stuff they were already doing that the, this cost structure, you know, of course, there's going to be inflation and things of that nature, but this cost structure is permanently lower. Now, we contrast that with, uh, say, the hotel business, right, where um, they've been running at staffing levels that are 70, 75 percent of what they were pre-COVID. Uh, but that's also with business travel being way off. You know, leisure travel has been carrying them, uh, the hotels, so they certainly benefit from that. But we don't see the cost structure reductions there as permanent because I think the business customer is more discerning. So they're in a kind of a catch-22 as, as the, the business customer comes back, uh, they're going to have to offer some more amenities. And, and the hotel business is much more competitive than the casino business, right? I mean, you, the casino business is, the people go to the casino that's closest to where they live and the casinos are, can be, you know, 20, 50 miles apart, whereas the hotels are right next to each other. All right. And, and people we used to stay in their system because of brand loyalty and the points they accumulate. But with business travel not being where it was and probably never getting back business transit. Look, we're doing this as a Zoom call. Right. It's, it's effective. It's worked. Uh, we're actually seeing business transient. That would be not the convention business, but, you know, the corporate customer, me traveling to San Francisco to meet with clients, for instance, is business transient. We're seeing that business actually get a little bit worse. So it's probably being affected by uh, the economy right now, whereas you know, leisure travel clearly is not, at least you know, through the first couple of weeks or first week of February. Uh, but with that business, the group and convention business coming back big time in the first quarter here, 
I, I think those customers are more discerning and they're going to, you know, they're going to want to come home after meetings and either have room service. or they're going to want to, you know, be able to go to the bar. And if it's not open, that's going to be a problem. And they can go to the hotel next door next time if, if those amenities aren't open. So I see competition as bringing back a lot of those costs. And, and we could see that uh, really quickly here in, in the first quarter. So that's an example of, and I can get it. There's a lot of other stuff too, but that's an example of, of a segment or a sector uh, within the GLL universe that uh, I, I think is, is not sustainable in terms of some of the progress that's been made with COVID. And actually, I think the business has probably gotten worse because of that permanent impairment to that business transient uh, customer. I mean, for me, you know, look, I'm, I'm probably going to be traveling half of what I did pre-COVID. That also means my my status on the hotels is not going to be as high, right? So I'm, I'm less loyal to the, the brands that I was uh, that I was, you know, I had to stay at intercontinental hotels because that's, that's where I, you know, my, my loyalty was, and I was high status on that. And I wanted to maintain that. I have no chance of maintaining that anymore. So I, I don't care as much. This is actually benefits the OTAs, which I think is another business that's actually gotten better uh, since COVID because uh, I've been using the OTAs way more. Uh, I think that's also a generational shift too, that Generation X is is using uh, OTAs much more than they, they used to. So uh, a, a lot going on, a lot of changes because of COVID, uh, some permanent uh, some some temporary, and I think it's it, you know a, a, a trick to figuring out the long term themes of, of what's going on in, in the leisure space is tied to you know what is the state sustainability of of the new business models. Hey, hey Todd, it's Andrew. I got a question for you. Um, <clears throat> have you seen? And I, and I think you kind of alluded to this, but in terms of the models, because I know you guys do some of the best modeling work at Hedgeye. Um, like, are, have you seen a trend of just like higher per caps and driving higher margins and maybe occupancy or, or visitation levels still kind of remaining depressed, maybe not back to like 2019 levels and that trend being like a really big boost to margins? Is that something? Yeah, absolutely. Great, great, great point, Andrew. I mean, it's clearly happening. Like room rates, especially in leisure markets are up you know, 20 to 40% versus pre-COVID. And, and as you pointed out, occupancies are actually lower. And this is a, this is a, uh, you know, this is kind of like a peak over earnings um, uh, drivers right now, because, you know, those, those rates aren't sustainable. I think a lot of that was just pent up demand. Uh, so when you get a, when you get a 1% increase in room rate, you know, that drops right to the bottom line. The flow through is huge. I mean, you have a, a room tax and that's about it. But when you get a 1% increase in occupancy, you have to service the room, you have to service the guests. Uh, still high margin, but not, not as high. So you're running at these peak ADRs at the same time. And a lot of this is because, you know, business travel hasn't been there. And, and the whole, like, customer... Uh, you know, the, the, the customer like preferences and everything's turned on its head. It used to be that the leisure customer was discerning, more discerning on price and the business customer, transient customer would just pay whatever because the, the firm was paying for it. That's been flipped on its head. And that's why, you know, business travel coming back and maybe, maybe leisure moderating a little bit just because it's been, you know, such a huge growth trajectory is bad for the business model as well because you're going to get uh, more price elasticity, more occupancy, which is, you know, tough for margins. So, yeah, I, I do think they've been over earning. And, you know, you look at like a Pebble Brook, which, uh, you know, they were some of their room rates were like 50 percent higher last year than 2019, which is astonishing. And that just really, you know, explodes your margins. Uh, so we'll see what happens. But I, I think you're going to see margin issues starting this quarter. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I didn't want to get too in the weeds, but, you know, in my world, a little bit of overlap is just like with Walt Disney and the parks, right? So that, that's been a huge theme where, um, you know, visitation or has been pretty subdued, but they've been really driving price, which has led to record operating margins. But now going forward, they're talking about, you know, um, pricing in a way to kind of open it up to a broader uh, demographic, right? So volumes are going to go up, which is probably going to mean lower per caps, so which is going to hurt margins. And then also on the live entertainment side with Live Nation, that's one where I've been thinking about that a lot, just given that they saw a huge benefit from price increases and kind of per caps on site uh, for on site spending. Um, so if that flips, it's, it sounds like that's, you know, obviously it's negative for those two stocks, uh, Live Nation especially, but I just wanted to get your take on that. That's uh, yeah. it's helpful. And and on the uh, you know it's it's the, the same phenomenon is happening, but for different reasons on on the casino side, um, you know the strip and and in the regional markets you're seeing way higher spend per visitor with visitations still down versus 2019 levels. 
But the difference there is, is really about, um, you know, what I mentioned with the amenities and, and the marketing in that, um, you know, you're, you're just, you're just, you've just got a better customer because you're figuring, you, they figured out who to market to and who not to market to. And that's done nothing, you know, to, to take away from their profitability at all. They just, they realized they had such a big part of their customer base that wasn't profitable. So that to me is more sustainable than these crazy high room rates you're seeing uh, elsewhere. Andrew, yeah. uh, as someone who goes to the Disney Orlando parks every single year with his kids and has to like brave through that, I have to say, like, I hope that means they're going to somehow increase capacity because you're just, it's like a sea of humanity. And there are times where you literally can't even walk. Yeah. Well, that's, and that's what they've done. I mean, they've, they've lowered the, they've put a cap on capacity levels and, but now they're a decade. Like, yeah. Yeah. So Um, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Okay. How do you think that, sorry, sorry, Andrew, how do you, how do you think that plays out in terms of, um, you know, is there, is there a point where, where, Customers just get pissed off because they can't, you know, they can't afford it. They can't get in. Well, uh, and it I mean, kind of normalizes, or is this a permanent thing where occupancies or whatever you, you know, whatever the term is for attendance, I guess, is down, but uh, you know, the yield is so much higher. Yeah, I mean, that it's all been a yield story from the parks, um, and you know, there's obviously been a CEO transition uh, recently, but you know, under the other CEO, Chapic, they did a pretty sizable price increase on the parks, and they did get pushback. Like it, it really. You know, the more you raise price, right, the more you're isolating kind of your core, your largest customer base because you just are pricing them out. Now, you know, that there's still a part of, you know, the the more affluent uh, consumer that can still afford to do that. And so it's been driving overall yield. Um, But in terms of like building the overall brand for Disney, accessibility is huge. Right. Um, and so they have seen pushback uh, on the consumer side. They have seen uh, attendance levels and volumes come under pressure. Um, you know, it's come it's come through better margins. But you know, I think in terms of the overall health of the organization and just building out the Disney brand, like, you know, they need to make it accessible. And that's what they're looking to do. So they started to like open up lower price days. They're uh, going from like 17 days a year to 50 plus days a year. Um, and so that's going to flow through. Um, because they were getting pushed back. Um, yeah, so. Um, let me, sorry, Todd, let me come back to you for a second here with a couple of questions off of like your, your intro, um, a couple of follow-up questions. You said that um, we're still playing, the services are still playing catch-up, um, which I guess comes also from Andrew's question about, you know, kind of lower occupancy, higher price. So you're in this, like, as you said, you're sort of in this beautiful incremental cash flow or incremental profit waterfall situation, right? Because you're just, it's all flowing to the bottom line. Is that still, do you still get long that until, like, until that inflects and then suddenly it's like, oh, CapEx is back. Uh, You know, they're spending, they're saying, oh, we're still going to be conservative with that, but they're spent. You know, we're, we're, we're like, how long, I guess my question is also like on both airline and, and maybe hotel separately, but like, where has there been the kind of consolidation where you can say like, yeah, there's no option. So this I don't know, $500 flight isn't going to get much cheaper because that's, there's only two competitors on that route or uh, no, there's like 29 hotels within a square mile of this one spot. And so you're just, you can't hold price here for very long. Like, tell me where the consolidation has or hasn't happened. Uh, when are we starting to see those signals of like the CapEx rising and there's no more increment? There's still incremental. There's still for cash flow growth because you're still growing top line, but like you're not incremental for cash flow. Like the waterfall period has sort of stopped or peaked. Uh, to your point, like when, when is that? And, and kind of where are we with like consolidation? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's long-term dynamics at play here, which I mentioned. Uh, so it's not just to go to your first party question. It's not just about, um, uh, you know, catch up. It's, it's, it's just, it's just that, you know, we look at the, the government figures uh, and, you know, we can break it out between consumer goods and consumer services and cumulative spend is still higher for consumer goods um, versus 19 than it is for uh, consumer services. But then there's, then you layer on that there's, you know, we believe there's been, uh, and we did a whole deck on this, but there's been a shift towards 
towards leisure in general, at leisure travel uh, versus versus hard goods. Again, experiences versus things, and I think that trend is is going to continue. Um, there's been a lot of consolidation in my industry uh, for years. Um, you could, whether you talk about the OTAs, um, the hotels, you know, the, in terms of having brands, you know, fewer brands that that or I shouldn't say brands, but fewer companies that own brands, uh, so fewer loyalty programs. Um, that that has definitely happened. You know, you had Sheridan getting bought by Marriott, um, and the casino business is really consolidated. There's there's really only five or maybe six players in the casino business that, you know, this was one of the worst managed businesses ten years ago, and now it's it's one of the best in my opinion. It's really been a sea change there. So there, there's a lot to be gained from you know, the, if you can if you can target places that have uh, within my sector, because uh, these are mostly fixed cost businesses, but that have um, you know good same store sales numbers or, or outlooks, um, you're going to get a lot of flow through to to the bottom line, right? Without necessarily having to spend capex, say, for a new casino property, right? Um, the the hotel business. Uh, you know, there are still hotels being built. Uh, there's no question about that. Uh, so there's still CapEx going out there. Um, but the casino business, not so much. It's it's more, you know, can you point to and, and a big sea change in, in the casino business, too, which I didn't mention yet, is, is the demographics, which have really changed uh, for the casino business. So uh, prior to COVID, we were... Um, really worried about, you know, the core, the core customer was a baby boomer, average age 65, you know, they were getting too old to go to casinos or dying off and you didn't see generation X really picking up the slack and certainly not millennials, but COVID introduced the product to a whole different um, customer base because, you know, if you, you go back to like the summer of 2020 in the fall, everything was closed but the states needed the tax dollars. So they left the casinos open and a lot of millennials went to these casinos and we can see it in the data, um, but, and they liked the product. So there was a mis misperception of what the product really was. Uh, people thought about it as, you know, rinky dink riverboats. Uh, and it turned out there's, you know, were decent products with, you know, some decent amenities as well. And um, if you look at the pen, pen put out some great demographic data that really confirmed what we had been saying. And that was uh, the business was skewing younger. And if you look at the cohorts, so start with over 65, then go 55 to 65, 45, 55, so forth. The younger you go, the younger the cohort, the more growth there is versus 2019. And it steps up huge. Now it's coming off a low base when you look at like, you know, 21 to you know 30 year olds. But but still the, the point taken that it's skewing younger, you're getting more growth. And that's great for the long term because now you have a finally have a, a revenue tailwind. Whereas before, you know, we, we saw it as a headwind and, and didn't think that we would see any growth on the top line. And that's that's really changed. So numbers are way, way above 2019 levels. And you still you have this avenue of growth now from demographics, which is which is great. I mean, demographic plays are fantastic long term, right? If you can prove them out. Yeah, I mean, the, it sounds from everything you're saying, it sounds like the casino business is really like, you know, the, the consolidation, you said the change and the, and the demographic change. Those are those sound like really bullish. Um, what about over in the airline space? Is there anything that, uh, you know, is it still a crap business or is it, you know, how do you I mean, I don't know. Tell me tell me how you think about airlines. Is this like, you know, yes, consolidated, super cheap, you know, hated, whatever, or you know, no, these are, you know, there's excess, still excess capacity and there's going to be, you know, declining rates of travel and, and you know, kind of like a secular shift away from something or other. Like, I, I'm just, I don't know. Like, I'm asking broadly about airlines. Yeah, I, look, we we don't cover the airlines. That's Jay, but, um, you know, oh, we do. sorry. We do, <laughs> no problem. We do, we do pay attention to, to actually, actually, we, we will be covering the airlines. It fits nicely in with uh, with our space. So that'll be transferred over at some point because uh, it makes a lot of sense. You know, like if you look at the sell side, you know, nobody who covers the OTAs or the airlines covers lodging or casinos or leisure. Um, we cover right now OTAs, which I, I don't know how you cover hotels without covering OTAs, but there's not one other sell side firm that does that. And airlines fit right into that mix too. I mean, we look at business travel, we look at leisure travel, most of it's air travel, so it fits in. So we will have uh, more opinions on the airlines uh, coming coming to a uh, uh, sell side firm near you. Okay, got it, got it. Thank you. That was a good plug. Um, so, so sorry for the bad question, but then uh, uh, but then good good on you for turning it into a good plug. Um, but okay, coming to my next question, and then I know Andrew is a bunch, so I'll ask this one and I'll step back in the queue afterwards. Like looking at your, your overall space, um, who are like some of the 
like that you can see are like the best companies in the space, like who, who, you know, think about the trends correctly and size themselves correctly and are moving either with the trend or half step ahead and investing at the right times and not over investing at the wrong times. And who also by definition are also like the worst companies in the space who are like, you know, stringing it together, you know, either weak acquisitions or badly time spending or just kind of like, you know, BSing their way through and like kind of like, you know, hope springs eternal and band-aids and, and rubber bands type of, type of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I, I, I think that the, the casino companies are, are a lot better managed than they used to be. But I, I'd have to say that, you know, the, probably the top two best management management teams uh, are, are Booking and, um, and Hilton, particularly Hilton. Uh, which, you know, we don't love either one of those stocks. We're not, we're not short them, but uh, you know, they're, they're both big multiple stocks uh, with, with high expectations. But the reality is Hilton is just, and you contrast it with Marriott, uh, Hilton is just so far ahead of Marriott every step of the way. Um, you know, they, Hilton, uh, you look at their pipeline, right? So the big bull thesis on, on these C-Corp brand companies, right? These are fee-based businesses for, for the most part. They don't own many hotels, uh, the REITs on the hotels, uh, but so so they get big multiples. Um, but a big part of the bull thesis is really predicated on on unit growth. So they need to drive continued unit growth. And um, Hilton just dominates Marriott, and they've been doing this for years. And you look at the pipeline too. Um, you know, we have an issue with the the overall pipeline of of new hotels in the U.S. and that not enough are under construction. Too many are in the early planning phase. They all get categorized as in the pipeline. Uh, but the cancellation rates for uh, hotels under construction is only like 3% for, for those in the early planning phase, it's 36%. And we have data that breaks out the pipeline into those, um, into those categories. And it's really important to monitor that because it's changed since COVID. You have much fewer units under construction and much you know, more units that are actually in the early planning phase. So that mixed shift alone means the pipeline is not as real. Now, Marriott's is, is in even worse shape than the overall industry. Hilton's in better shape. So Hilton has more properties under construction as a percent of total than Marriott. Marriott's is like the, the lowest level in terms of units under construction versus their total portfolio uh, that we've seen in, in years. And they have their former development guy running the company who kind of failed as a development guy and uh, we're not sure he's the greatest CEO either. Um, so uh, you look at what Hilton's done. Oh, the other the other part of Hilton too. That if you look at their their pipeline is concentrated in units that have already proven themselves. So we we look at you know you get to like 150 hotels uh, for a brand that usually means that you've got a straight shot to you know 500, 600, 700 hotels because the brand has been proven. The returns are there for the owners. Uh, Marriott most of their pipeline is actually in brands that uh, have not been established. So again, way more risk in the pipeline. Uh, so, you know, Hilton beats every quarter. Uh, they, they, you know, provide guidance, they beat it the next quarter um, and they hit their unit growth targets, which is very difficult to do in this environment, given, given the pipeline breakdown, just a really, really well-run company uh, gaining market share in their markets in terms of RevPAR. And, um, you know, Marriott's just, just can't keep up. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why uh, we actually like Marriott on the short side right now. Uh, Booking.com is a fantastic company. Uh, they, um, I mean, they're well positioned. Uh, we think Expedia actually has more upside, but Booking is gets a big multiple because they really execute. Um, you know, they, they've proven that when they ramp up their marketing spend, it, it, generates a return, right? Where Expedia is not quite in that boat. They don't get any credit when they ramp up their marketing spend. Uh, people just look at it as a, uh, a drag to profits rather than, you know, what, what will that mean for the future profits? Whereas booking gets the benefit of the doubt because they've proven themselves. Uh, and booking is uh, really well established in Europe, in Asia, and uh, in the United States, they're making a big push right now. So uh, I think they'll be, they'll be really, uh, really effective in, in what they do. Um, so I, I guess from a management perspective, those would be the two top teams in my universe. Awesome. And, and, and the worst, like what you mentioned, Marriott, but, you know, any others that kind of like fit into that, like, you know, held together by duct tape and rubber bands? Yeah, I think travel and leisure, TNL, uh, you know, management has put the company in a spot, right? This is a timeshare company, by the way. Uh, they put the, the company in a spot where they're targeting a, a higher end better credit profile customer, yet their product is kind of like middle of the road, right? So there's this big disconnect. So they're, yeah, their credit scores have gone up, 
But what's happened is their, their tour volume, which generally leads to, to revenues, is way down. And so they're in this catch-22 where they ha either have to lower uh, their credit um, requirements or they, they just continue to, to face this revenue pressure. And uh, right now, we think they're leaning towards um, not lowering their, their credit profile, and, and that's going to be detrimental to earnings and, and EBITDA going forward. You compare that with... Uh, Back, which is vacation uh, Marriott Vacations, uh, that's a high quality timeshare with a perfect match of of the customer and the high quality product, uh, and in a cash flow position where you know historically, if you buy that stock when uh, they're harvesting free cash flow and they're early in that cycle, which is like two to three years this time, uh, the stock really outperforms, and we're in that that zone right now. So I think that's a pretty well managed company as well. It just doesn't get the credit in the multiple yet because it's a kind of an underfollowed business. But TNL definitely. It's going to have their challenges and I'm not sure management's going to be able to get their way out of that. Awesome. Awesome. I'll step back in the queue and I'll let Andrew ask, ask his questions. Yeah. Not, not to, to, not to ask you to give up all the goods, but uh, I'd love to get your thoughts on what you think the formula one impact is going to mean for uh, Vegas and the strip. Um, and then just uh, kind of a separate question, just get your latest thoughts on uh, what's going on in Macau. If there's any hope for a recovery, if we're ever going to get back to where we were. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, both good questions. Um, so uh, I, I think the the F one race, and I know you're very familiar with F one. Uh, we, we've actually done the math on this, and we think that. So we're looking at when we look at Vegas this year, twenty three versus twenty two. Um, there's more events this year, um, but they are losing the NFL draft, which was a huge event last year. So we we're looking at it on net basis. They're losing the F or they're losing the NFL draft. They're gaining the F1 race. And if we look at it on a net basis, we think in terms of the impact to annual RevPAR revenue per available room, it'll be two to four percent net positive for the entire year, just from one event. Wow. Yeah. It, it is. It's going to be. Have, have you have you seen anything like that before? Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, you get like, like we call these compression nights. We've seen like Super Bowl in, in various markets, uh, by the way, Vegas is getting Super Bowl next year, um, have, have an impact like that. Um, but because it's multi, you know, multi-day, it's going to be, it's going to be massive. Um, and, and we're, we're pretty bullish on that's one of the many reasons why we're bullish on RevPAR for, for 2023, but a uh, good question. Then, then in Macau, yeah, I mean the recovery is well underway, and and you talked about you know yield. I mean their their spend per visitor in Macau through uh, you know January and February so far through Chinese New Year is up massively. So uh, visitation is still being restricted by the governments, uh, which is an issue we have long term. Uh, but for right now, there's so much pent up demand. I mean it's not unlike what we've seen in you know a lot of my businesses in the U.S. Uh, you know, where people, you know, the people who really want to spend are getting into Macau right now and they're spending like just crazy multiples of, of the average spend that we saw uh, pre-COVID. So the recovery is underway. Um, you're you're going to get like a slowdown in that spend per visitor at some point. Uh, but at the same time, I think they're going to be allowing more people into Macau from mainland China. So the sequential growth should be pretty strong uh, for, for a while. I mean, you know, the removal of zero COVID, everything's opening up. They're not letting flights in. Uh, all that stuff is positive. Our issue long term is just, you know, I, I'm not sure what the what the PRC really wants for Macau. I mean, there's there's been a huge brain drain. A lot of really smart people have left Macau, and I don't think it's just because of COVID. Um, you know, we've seen, uh, Felix knows this, we've seen, uh, you know, the, the PRC destroy industries, uh, that they don't like. Um, I'm not sure they love the gambling business. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, we're, and this isn't going to happen anytime soon. I'm not making this call, but I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, five, seven years down the road, it's, it's, you know, only tourists can gamble in Macau. Um, you know, they're trying to get them to invest in non-gaming uh, amenities and make it more of a broad-based diversified uh, tourist destination. But I don't think they love their citizens gambling. So what I think is going to happen is you're going to see sequential growth pretty consistently for a while. And then at some point, it's going to level off as a percentage of, of 2019 levels. And that's going to really spook people because you're going to be like, why, you know, why isn't it still growing? And, and it's probably going to be because they're restricting access, but that's just a thesis. It's a theory. I don't have, you know, I wasn't fly on the wall in, in any of the, the, the PRC's meetings. Um, but, you know, I'm just reading the tea leaves based upon all the, the brain drain out of there and, and kind of, you know, some of the public statements about diversifying the economy and, you know, the concessionaires uh, when they got their concessions re renewed late last year, and it also came with, 
um, the demand for you know a certain you know billion dollars of of spend for non-gaming amenities. Awesome. Well, I think that might be a good segue to let Felix on and ask a couple of questions. Hey, Todd. Uh, it's Felix. Glad to have you on our podcast. Uh, really appreciate your mentorship over all the years, and I really miss all our brainstorming sessions. And I'm, I'm sure you're you definitely miss all my nagging and bearing with me when I bring weird Chinese food into your office <laughs> uh, during our wonderful time together. But I'm actually the only guy to ever uh, microwave Chinese food in the office. Hey, good times, good times. <laughs> no, thanks, actually, yeah, that that was uh, that was funny. Um, I'm actually under the weather today, so I'm going to keep it short for you. Um, I have a few questions for Macau since you are the Macau King. Um, so you 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 did mention a little bit about how the the visitors are coming back to Macau given the reopening. Have you seen a change in the type of gamblers or tourists going into Macau since we had this reopening maybe a month ago or two months ago? I remember when we worked together, you know, we had those gung-ho, super gambling-focused VIP gamblers, and then you have premium mass gamblers, and then you have rich tourists just looking for a good time, similar to what's offered in Vegas, right? So has anything really changed in the, um, in the past three years or so? I mean, obviously, the whole industry has been impacted by COVID, but just curious to see if you've seen anything recently that has been changed. Yeah, well, the, the junket business has been uh, pretty much rendered um, to zero uh, because they, uh, I mean, they arrested uh, Alvin Chow, who was like the, you know, the, the, uh, you know, run, ran the, the biggest junket operator out there. And so the, the, the really the junkets, um, the, they're, they're in place, but they, you know, they can't give credit or anything like that. So it's, it's, it's really diminished part of the business. So what you've had is you've had, a, a lot of we think. I mean, we don't have any data yet because it's it's just been the market's been you know turned on and off so many times up until now. But what we think is happening is just a big blur between you know VIP premium mass uh, people who formerly went to the junkets. But the one thing they have in common right now uh, in terms of who's visiting Macau is they are huge gamblers because the yield per visitor is just up and we'll, we'll, we'll know the, the real data, but uh, on the, when we get the next quarterly results, but the numbers that we we're hearing is just huge, you know, multiples uh, of spend per visitor than what we saw before Macau. So I think it's pent up demand. The, the, the people who really need to gamble, if you will, uh, are finding their way to Macau and, and they're, they're comprising the, the, the majority of the visitation right now. Awesome. And then more of a sort of a bigger picture question on Macau. Do you think we're going to see new players or are the incumbent casino operators really going to be there for at least the next decade? Um, also, do you see much material changes to old Macau? I mean, when we were there with like SJM, right? And old some of the old wind properties, Um because as you mentioned earlier, you know, there has been more attraction from the local governments emphasizing more on non-gaming elements in Macau. So is that still being pushed? Um, just curious to hear your thoughts on, on Macau. Longer yeah, time. so as part of the concession renewal, um, they did consider, uh, I think it was Genting as another uh, concessionaire to go with the five that are already there. And, and uh, they end up not getting a concession. So they stuck with uh, the original players. And, uh, you know, that's set for seven years. So we won't see any new um, players come in. Uh, regards to your question about the older properties, you know, a lot of those, as you said, were SJM satellite properties. They basically took away uh, that option. So a lot of these satellite casinos, the old ones on the peninsula, you know, in downtown Macau have, have basically closed down. I mean, they were, they were almost non-events anyways. So it's really just the big properties that you hear about. That's, that's what's operating in Macau right now. Gotcha. I, I guess just one more question from me before I turn it back to Ami is outside of Macau, outside of the U.S., is there anywhere else around the world where you see there's some potential uh, for casinos to be built, whether it's like, I don't know, Singapore, Middle East, potentially? Yeah, yeah, actually a big one. We've had a big call on on uh, on Dubai uh, opening up. So you have a, um, a province, or I guess you call it an emirate, a part of the United Arab Emirates, um, 
that is where the, the wind property is going to open. Now they're gonna have details in the next couple of months, but you know, it's a few years off. Um, but it's pretty close to Dubai. It's like 45 minutes from the Dubai airport. And we're hearing that um, there may be another, it's like a little island. Um, and we're hearing that there's another um, casino operator that might get a license. We think maybe Melco actually. Um, so you'd have two properties, Wynn and Melco right next to each other uh, in that Emirate. And then uh, we're also hearing this is, you know, based on a trip that I made in the fall, uh, well, November and December uh, to, to the Middle East. Uh, we're hearing that Dubai is, the government's seriously considering um, legalizing casinos. And we know that MGM and Caesars has been there a, a while with hotel contact uh, contracts uh, and, and you know, just a, a presence, a big presence there. So we think there's a good chance that if uh, Dubai legalizes gambling, then we might hear something mid this year uh, that, that MGM and Caesars uh, get licenses, which we think would be huge. I mean, if you look at the, the, the geography, like where this is relative to, say, India, uh, you know, three-hour flight from India. We we know the Arabs like to gamble. They're they're in the UK all the time gambling. Um, you're close to to Europe. Uh, just just going to be, I think, a home run market. You know, assuming that the the regulations are appropriate and the tax rates are appropriate. But we do we do think they're looking at Singapore quite closely. So that would be a, a an effective model for for operators to get involved with. So I, I think that's something to monitor, and it could be huge. Um, we're hearing the usual stuff that you heard. You know, Thailand looking at casinos. Um, I do think that'll eventually happen, but, um, you know, I don't have any reason to believe that there's anything imminent. I, I think that's probably the, the, you know, we know Japan's coming, you know, that it's still a ways off, but Japan has already legalized casinos. MGM is planning to open up there. Uh, but that, that'll be, you know, four years at least before we see anything uh, generating revenue there. Awesome. Appreciate it, Todd. <clears throat> sure thing, bud. It's a quick question, just kind of going back, you mentioned before about, you know, leisure companies looking to kind of like rationalize spend and focusing on more profitable customers. Um, like, like how do they talk about anything that's going on uh, with their marketing spend? Maybe even like, I know it's pretty vast, like in the OTAs are pretty heavy marketers on things like search and other channels. I'm just curious if there's like any theme that you've noticed broad-based theme from just listening to the conference calls and where these guys are in the cycle um, related to their marketing spend, more of a selfish question than anything else, but I figured I'd ask because I had the opportunity. Yeah, I think a big trend uh, since COVID is, is much less spend on performance marketing and much more on, on brand mm -hmm. building, which is, is caused a little bit of an issue um, in the investment community because it's it, you know there's a timing mismatch right so it's it's much more difficult to monitor the return on marketing spend when it's brand building because it's much longer uh, payoff right so for instance this quarter fourth quarter for for Expedia one of the reasons stocks down today is is marketing spend uh, ramped up and people are looking at okay well what's the the leverage on that you know what's what's the percent of revenues what's the percent of bookings and it doesn't look great. Uh, but it's brand building. So, um, but, you know, I think, I think it's, it's, it's indicative that, you know, Expedia has kind of turned a corner and, and doesn't want to just rely on short-term uh, performance marketing, yeah. it's rather building for the long-term, but that's probably the biggest trend on the marketing side we're seeing. Got it. Yeah, no, I mean, and also too, from my seat, like, look, it's been pretty tough in the advertising space and CPMs and pricing have come down, especially on brand. So I'm sure that maybe they ramped up spend, but I'm sure that they're getting a bigger bang for their buck ultimately in terms of reach because pricing has gotten so much better um, as a function of just the weaker, you know, macro environment. So that's interesting. Yeah, that's, a, that's a good point. We'll see. It's going to be hard to, to monitor, but what I think will happen with, um, with Expedia at least is that you're just going to have this quarter where, you know, all of a sudden it's going to look great. Right. And because mm -hmm. they are they are actually gaining share overall, despite bookings push into the, the United States, uh, bookings gaining share, obviously, too. Mm -hmm. um, so they are doing well um, and their their app downloads are through the ceiling. So it's mm -hmm. going to pay off. But you're going to have this great quarter of leverage. Then that narrative is going to go away and the stock's going to just absolutely rip. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, this is my last question. And it's a less serious question, but I'm going back to like right, I was right out of college, just kind of degenerate day trading stocks, right? Just, you know, doing what you do in your early twenties, I guess. Uh, but there was this little company called Isle of Capri. Uh, Isle of that, Capri. That, that's no longer public. And I was just curious where, where, who went, if they just went bankrupt or if some, if they ended up somewhere else. No, uh, they are part of, uh, God, it's been so long. Um, we used to call them Pile of Debris. It was the worst run uh, casino company. 
but they are part <laughs> of Penn, I believe, at this point. So they were bought a couple times. So they were bought yeah. by uh, Pinnacle, I think. And then, and I, I may be wrong on this. My memory is not as good as it used to be, but it's it's rolled up into the, uh, mm-hmm. into Penn, I, I believe. So you have, um, you know, consolidation. I mean, you know, I could go through all the list of Argosy is now yeah, sure. Penn, yeah. Penn, Pinnacle and stuff. So um, Isle of Capri uh, is no longer. And obviously uh, the numbers are much better under different management. Those problems. Okay, that's Good all I question, got. Though. I, look I don't know, Ami, if, mean, if you have anything, but that's uh, I'm. This has been awesome for myself. Yeah, no, this has been like so good. Um, and really, also thanks to Felix's questions, we've we've kind of run the whole picture here, to including Macau and stuff. Um, I have a question about multiples in the space. Like, uh, what are like what's kind of like the regular multiples? Uh, is it just straight PE? Is it EBITDA something? Is it EBITDA or whatever it is? Um, and and, and kind of like, where are we right now with multiples? Are we like, oh yeah, it's, you know, all time elevated, you know, big bubble multiples. Are we, you know, super depressed? Like relative to your career of like kind of following these stocks, like how would you, you know, what, what is, what, what are the common, like the main multiples people use in space? And like, what uh you know where are we with that kind of like that relative level and and how do you think about that going forward yeah um the multiples i use are whatever supports my thesis the best um so uh yeah i mean look that's actually an interesting point because uh we we historically really don't use pe's other than for the companies that are, are not capital intensive, like the, the OTAs, uh, that's the P's are the, the main valuation metric. Same with the C-Corps, uh, the hotel C-Corps. Uh, both, neither one of those are capital intensive. Um, we, we're arguing, especially for like regional casinos, that PE should actually be used now because um, as a result of COVID and all the cash flow that's been generated uh, with these new business models, uh, these guys have paid down so much debt that you know they're, they're at optimal debt leverage. And uh, that means their interest expense is not like crazy, which it used to be. And it used to suppress EPS. So it wasn't even you know worth looking at. Uh, now it, it actually approximates free cash flow because um, you know maintenance capex is pretty close to depreciation. Um, and, and so your cash flow, it's a, you know, pretty much a cash business. So I think PE should be used. We actually argued for this in, in one of our notes, um, or one of our decks. And if you start looking at PE for the casino business relative to other consumer spaces, it, it looks really, really cheap, right? And that's one of the reasons why we think this business should be valued uh, more highly. Uh, EV and EBITDA we use um, increasingly using free cash flow yield, like a normalized free cash flow yield. So, um, you know, we'll X out if there's any development capex. Like it's not worth it looking at free cash flow yield for somebody like Red Rock that's building, you know, two new properties. So, they, they, you know, we just look at, try to look at maintenance capex rather than uh, uh, growth capex. Uh, but yeah, so if I look at that historically, um, you know, and, and a lot also depends on our numbers. So like, you know, we, we look at the valuation on consensus than our numbers because, you know, we have, you know, much higher numbers for say MGM and the, and the strip uh, Las Vegas operators and much lower for the hotel business. But if you look at our numbers, um, the, the C-Corp, so Hilton, Marriott, uh, like sky high valuations, um, you know, up at the high end of their historical range. Uh, casino business on our numbers at the low end, um, more kind of in the middle, uh, of the historical range. But again, I think the historical range is, is too low uh, when we look at EV to EBITDA, which is the, still the preferred metric used by most people. But again, I think PE should be used uh, more. And free cash flow yields are very, very high for these companies. Um, and then and then on the, the hotel REITs, on our numbers, the stocks actually look expensive. Uh, and that's because we're below the street. Uh, so, um, you know, we, we've had... Um, We've had a, a a real you know downturn in the valuations without especially for the casino companies without a corresponding you know decline in the estimates. So quad fours really impacted sentiment, brought these stocks down, but the numbers haven't changed really. And if anything, like for the strip operators, they've gone up actually. So stocks look even cheaper. Got it. Wow, that's really really uh, helpful. Um, so I, I mean I, I I'm I'm kind of like looking at my notes and and I'm kind of thinking about um, I, I, maybe I have one last question just to clarify like the the demographic trends you said and just also like kind of like the overall trend you said um, properties in general are 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 seeing lower unit volume of occupancy 
higher prices, obviously. So, so compared to like, you know, 2018, 19. So we're sort of down on that scale. Um, you're saying that in casinos, there's a big demographic shift that favors the casinos. Um, any other, first of all, those, is that, did I get that right? And then any other like major kind of like 10 year thematic trends that you're seeing either just start or take shape or alive and strong and have been alive for a while that, that kind of like drive a lot of the investment and value creation in the space that, that sort of, you know, whether it's like, you know, either catering more to business or catering more to leisure or high end leisure or whatever it is, like any kind of major trends that you continue to see uh, in the space. Yeah, I, 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 um, I think I've covered most of the, the big trends, you know, the biggest is just being, you know, affects every company in my space. And that's just leisure travel is, uh, you know, I think a, um, you know, both from a demographic standpoint and a choice standpoint is, uh, should be a big tailwind uh, for, for most of my companies. Um, so, yeah, um, trying to think if there's anything else that I haven't covered uh, demographics we talked about. Uh, like no, the boomers, is the boomer situation good for travel? Cause, cause it's sort of like a generation that continues to retire and then travel, or is that just irrelevant and that's, you know, kind of not. No, I, I, I think that's important. I, I think the, um, you know, back to the casino business, like the, the, there, there is a potential, um, negative in terms of the demographic shift. We're a few years away from this, but you know, the fact that the the consumer is skewing lower now uh, for, and this is more regional gaming than, than anything else, uh, that probably means more cyclicality for that business. Because what we found is, uh, and I think I mentioned this, that housing prices and, and real estate wealth are the number one drivers, and that's because of casino revenues. And that's because the core customer is, is usually older, retired, their wealth, net wealth is more determined by real estate than anything else, you know, more so than, than current disposable income. But as you skew younger, you're going to be tied to, to disposable income. Um, so um, you'll be less tied to housing, uh, but more tied to the overall uh, economy. But the positives outweigh the negatives there because, you know, you've got a demographic tail when more people want to go to casinos than prior. Got it. Got it. Um, all right. I think that that helps us uh, to draw like a fine point on the summer here. Um, very interesting session. Thank you very much, Todd, for for your time. Uh, thanks, uh, obviously, Andrew and Felix for joining uh, co-hosting today and asking tons of awesome questions as well. Um, and, uh, and thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been uh, season three, episode four of Unscripted Equity Curiosity. See you again next time. Don't forget to check out HedgeEye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at HedgeEye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by HedgeEye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedge is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the terms of service at hedgeye.com slash terms of service.